0: Welcome to Indie Music Podcast, episode 321, The Other Side of Mastering. Indie Music Podcast now has a Patreon at patreon.com slash indie underscore musiccast and we invite you to become a member for exclusive benefits. For next to nothing per month, you can get members-only podcast video, early access to upcoming episodes, merch, and more. This morning, Matt and I get together for coffee and talk about the other side of the mastering process that many are not familiar with or have never considered as part of the mastering process. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome to the Indie Music Podcast, the podcast for independent musicians
1: and other audio professionals. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Denton, also known as Mojo of Ragged Birds Music. I'm a Bay Area mix engineer and recording artist. And Douglas Reynolds of Resonance Mastering, a mastering engineer in Bloomington, Illinois.
0: Morning. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, it's going all right. How are you doing? Excellent. It's a beautiful, sunny morning this morning. <laughs> and for those who. And in our um, sort of, I guess, southeastern hemisphere, the uh, Jupiter and Venus and what else? Um, maybe Saturn. I think we're above the horizon this morning. Oh, Um, which is if you, I I was up, uh, just a little bit before dark, you could see him, um, just above the horizon. It was cool. Nice.
1: I can't really, I can't really see my horizon. There's too many trees and houses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I switched out my mic today. I'm using my Behringer B2 pro, uh, condenser mic. That was the first condenser mic that I bought. And I recorded on most of my, most of my albums on that. It's a nice looking microphone it's uh un- it's underrated it's a solid mic i got it on ebay many years ago it's not a flat response it has a slight bump at 12k um which is, which helps voices cut through a mix but it might be a little bright for something just spoken word like a podcast but it's good for recording vocals in a mix
0: i think it sounds fantastic right now over zoom audio oh cool yeah yeah, uh, hopefully the uh, uh, your local recording um, will sound as good. I think it sounds really yeah, I hope good. Yeah, also too. It's definitely
1: a little. I mean, it's it's definitely a little brighter than the pod the uh, the Samson that I've been using all week.
0: Yeah, but it's it's not over the top, and and there's plenty of low in there. It sounds like really well balanced. I, I w- uh if it sounds like this in your recording, I bet you don't even have to EQ it. I mean, seriously, yeah. it's really no, good. no.
1: I that was what I liked about it when I was recording with it, um, for for my rock music.
0: Yeah. No, excellent. I like it. It'd be one to get in the mic locker just for uh, um, uh, just to have it because it sounds like a great mic.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's relatively inexpensive. I, I think it's still available, but it's uh, it's kind of an overlooked but pretty solid condenser mic. It's gold flecked. I don't know if that makes any difference, but that's <laughs> one of their selling points. It's kind of plug and play. It's got a pad. It can do omni, um, figure eight, or cardioid. Um, it's got a 10 DB pad. If you want to use it on the kick drum and it's got a low, um, shelf that falls off at 60 DB at 150 if you want to use it. But I turned that off for now because I think it sounds better with spoken oh, cool. word.
0: Yeah. Nice, man. Um, I'm surprised you haven't used it before on the podcast. I forgot that I had it. Oh, really? <laughs> for the man who has too many microphones that he forgets that he has a, a particular microphone well, well you-
1: I forgot that I had it because I kept, I had this one in the house uh, with my other um, interface I- in the event that there was
0: some reason that I couldn't record out here. So do you, if I- you've got a lot of guitars. Do you forget that you have a particular guitar? <laughs> no comment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, what about you? Any new gear this week? Anything cool going
0: on in your setup? No, nah, just cables. Um, oh, that's right. Yep. Really tape expensive drive. Expensive cables.
1: <laughs> did you uh it sounded like you
0: paid more for cables than you did for your tape machine? <laughs> no well, it was close, but I, I I worked with my uh sales engineer and I got a better price. But okay. uh yeah. <laughs> it's cause I was like, really? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that's one of those hidden costs, you know.
1: You, you you spec out stuff, you spec out gear, you spec out all the obvious things, but yeah. When you're talking about high quality cables, that I yeah throw that into the hidden cost category. Like, wait, what? Yeah, I and pay I, how much for good cables?
0: And I I gotta really care about it, you know, and yeah, uh, because you know anything the weakest link in your in your signal chain is the your lowest point, you know. Oh yeah, and um, you know, and inferior cables. I know there's uh. I don't want to open up a whole can of worms here, but I do think that <laughs> cables matter, you know, and well, uh, they do and i and I think that there's negligible differences for uh when you get to a certain quality of cable and above and mm-hmm. uh, and then it's a matter of you know what are you really going for you know i mean right. i think if you if you had like a hundred dollar cable versus a thousand dollar cable the the odds of of really hearing a difference there are probably mm-hmm. very, very. Uh, it's the minutia stuff there, right. you know, and you know, and, and I totally respect for the audio file and I, I kind of am a semi-audiophile that, uh, that they care about that kind of thing, and and mm-hmm. and if you've got the the money to uh, to go for that for what you're trying to achieve with your with your audio system, then definitely go for it, you know, because sure. there is that little bit of difference, and when you're trying to tweak out every last little bit, then that's where that can be made up, you know, but. I think there's a big difference between that hundred dollar cable and that nine dollar cable. Absolutely. And and I think that uh, you know that's that's really important. And you know make good choices there depending on what you're doing. <laughs> the the nine dollar cable may be really good for uh, live, and uh, it's pretty much disposable because the cables mm. get abused and you know when you're playing out live and everything like that. And so maybe that makes more sense for that kind of thing. It doesn't, right? You know, but for recording. You need to, you know, and, and mixing, mastering, Um, you know, if you're using cables, uh, as I do for um, routing for outboard and things like that, and obviously out to your monitors and things. And I think that does matter. So um
1: Yeah, I didn't believe that for a while when I was first starting out, but it, it did take me learning it the hard way, of course, that even with guitar cables, you know, guitar leads you know, the, the cheap ones just, they just, they just don't have the proper wiring, the shielding and the, the, yeah. you know, they just, they introduce noise into your, into your signal chain. Yeah.
0: And it's measurable. And I've experienced that. You remember that a few months ago where yeah. I, I, and I had some, that's uh, one of the things that I just ordered was patch cables to replace. Um, mm. Cause I, I actually, I couldn't use the patch cables that I had because they were introducing noise. Uh, so I've been using long, uh, good, but longer cables. Mm. Um, and another thing that I believe is that you should keep your cable links to as minimum as possible. That's why I'm, uh, right. you know, like in my rack, I'm not using, you know, 10 or 15 foot cables, I'm using, you know, which I, I actually have right uh, now waiting on the patch cables um, so that I can reduce the length of, of the cables that I'm using, you know, so. I have a question about that.
1: Yeah. Now, um, having worked in IT for so long, I remember when, you know, there was. Cat three, cat four, cat five, cat six, cat e. And those were all different specifications of Ethernet cables. Yeah. And um a lot of it had to do um with not just the quality of the wires and the shielding, but like how many twists of the wires per inch, which basically kind of like a humbucker does, basically um countered all of the the what's called crosstalk between the wires so that it cancelled out and the cleaner the signal was cleaner. Yeah. And I remember there was a specification because I used to actually make my own cables uh, for my own Ethernet cables. And I remember there was a spec. It would not be Cat5 if it wasn't a certain length because there wasn't enough distance between oh. the ends of the cable for enough twist to be uh, countering the crosstalk. Is that true? Do you think of, of audio cables as well?
0: I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't have... Uh, the shortest cable I use is one and a half feet. Um, I used mm. all my my entire signal chain is balanced so i've got all shielded cables throughout the entire studio mm-hmm. um except for well i'm running balanced out i've got a uh, um a balanced amplifier and so i've got a balanced signal all the way uh to the amplifier so it's just from the amplifier to the speakers where we're no longer uh, okay shielded and and there there's some different usable i mean obviously i I think, especially with speaker cable and impedance and capacitance and stuff like that, that yeah, you want to you want to have the right length of cable and not too much more excess to get to your speakers, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's you know because of uh, potential for RF interference and things like that, right. uh, you know, and stuff. Um, uh, some people, uh, and I'm not sure the validity of this, but th- believe that it's not good to have your cables on the ground. Um, mm, and I they actually, they actually make little risers so you can kind of bridge them up off, off the ground. And, um, I mine are on you the ground. True? Do you think that's true? Maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> what mine, would be that? What's the risk? What's the rationale for
1: saying that? I wonder,
0: you know, I, I don't I know. Uh, uh, some stuff. kind of weird grounding or something like that. I think it depends maybe on the material that the speakers are laying on. Maybe if they're laying on carpet, there's potential for static electricity or something like oh. that. I don't know. Um, Maybe it's practical.
1: Maybe it's just that if it's on the ground, it's more likely to get stepped on and have the shielding. Yeah, open.
0: I mean, if you've got a thousand dollar speaker cable, you, you know, I ain't letting that thing touch the ground. You know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, and my my speaker cables, I actually um, uh, enclosed them. Uh, I've got really good speaker cable, and I built, I, I made them up myself. I have uh, uh, Canari, which I'm a, a big fan of, um, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of Canari cable in my in my studio. Thank mm-hmm. you, Canari. You're not sponsored, but you're great. And then I also, uh, uh, enclosed everything in tech flex, which is the, uh, kind of nylon material that, uh, um, kind of works like a, uh, um, the Chinese finger lock thing, that oh, t- yeah, 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 you yeah. know? And, uh, and so I've got that and I've got it pulled with shrink wrap on the ends and stuff. Okay. And, and that's a, an abrasive barrier to keep the 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 cable from getting chafed or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. because it does lay on the, on the floor. So, Um, And then I was also able, I I do it because I can easily identify my cables. All my signal cable uh, going out for monitoring is red. Um, So I can quickly find cables by color. My data cables are blue. You know, anyway, I kind of go with that. So it makes it because you you end up with a lot of cable. I don't do that in my rack because it's just too expensive. And I, you know, once it's wired up. But I'm I do, a big fan of color coding, but yeah. yeah, otherwise you're going to have to make little labels. And I well, flags. I use since I've made up all my cables to date so far, uh, I use shrink tubing, mm-hmm. um, and I and I just do like once I like the left side, I put a white piece of shrink oh. tubing on, so yeah. I I know from one end or the other, uh, you know which is left, which is right, um, which is you know that's uh, otherwise you got to like start at one end and then trace your cable you know and there's uh there's a lot of cables and and it doesn't take a lot of equipment to develop a lot of cables cuz you're basically talking about a power wire and four cables for mm-hmm. every analog device so that's left and right ins and left and right outs okay and uh and in some cases you've got more you've got um um for instance uh, uh your world clock cables uh your um mm-hmm. uh, uh SPDif cables your uh your light pipe cables uh you know so there's I've got a uh 25 pin um, uh what what's it called DB um DB25. 25. DB25 25 cable uh in here, you know that goes out. So that's uh that's eight channels of microphone mic prees that come into my um uh just the outputs that co- that come into my uh patch bay so I can patch any mm-hmm. channel being recorded if I wanted up to eight channels. Don't use it. I only use a couple, but uh, um, it's nice to have those. Uh, I have used more than two on occasion and I've had people in here for special recording sessions or something like that, but Mm -hmm. I don't really need that anymore. But I did keep the, I kept my Claret when I sold off uh, my other recording and mixing stuff um, because I thought that was useful. So, um, and I do continue to use it for the podcast right now. So.
1: One thing I've done in the past is um, just go to the hardware store and, um, Got like a, a multi pack of multicolored electrical tape. And because electrical tape comes in red, blue, green, white, and all this stuff. And I would just take a short length of electrical tape and put the same color at the end of each thing. So this yeah. one has white ends and this one has red ends. And you can just tell at a glance oh, that power cord goes to my computer and that power cord goes to my speakers yeah i mean
0: yeah and for any cable that's already made up you don't want to have to desolder it so you can slide some shrink tube on and then solder it back together again you know so having some tape like that um, that's what i was gonna
1: ask does shrink tube work if you take a tube and you like cut it and wrap it around can you still shrink it or does it not work
0: uh there's some that has a an adhesive on the inside of it that might work Mm -hmm. for that but it might be compromised you'd be better off i think using tape for it but yeah, uh I think so um, but if you're making up your own ta- uh, uh, cables and you have the opportunity to throw a little sliver of uh shrink tubing on there and and mm-hmm. and go ahead and market it that's what i do and uh yeah yeah and i don't do all i mean you know i don't want to uh, i don't do the right channels i just do the left channels and i know by location in the patch bay which you know there's they're in pairs so i i know that the one right next to it is the is the same device you know um so every two so it's not hard to find i just need to know right. and make sure that i got the left channel uh, left cable channel in the left channel and uh and then yeah. if i'm looking for that one cable then i can quickly find it because i know what channels it's in the patch bay and then uh if i'm looking for a left one i know that it's going to have a white on it so it's easy to find um i don't have to have everyone a different color it doesn't matter um it's it's easy enough to find that yeah th- if i just have to the to
1: one distinguish them
0: yeah because the back side of my uh um patch base all numbered as well so i can see it oh right yeah
1: it's not what we were going to talk about
0: today <laughs> <laughs> no no but it's interesting you know it is interesting um, and uh i think you know cables are well i don't really think of them as the overlooked thing because i'm always faced with. Uh, the expense of them um, sure. um so i'm well aware every time i buy a piece of equipment <laughs> yeah i wish it wouldn't be the way but you know okay well that means i get you know um it's it's definitely nice to have some extra cable around i i do i've used it all up now i i, ha- I had bought uh some bulk cable and i had some inventory of uh like uh um quarter inch TRSs and, uh, I use quarters TRS and, and male and female XLR. So I just bought like some bulk of those things and I had them around. I've used them all up now, but, uh, um, it's a nice way to go. Cause then you got the stuff and you don't have to wait days for, uh, an order it, it, where I'm at. Nobody has the stuff that I'd like to use. It's all the cheaper things. I won't name any brand names on that, but, <laughs> um, you know, and I just don't care for, for that stuff. It's, it's more geared towards, um, Consumer level consumer stuff. consumer level stuff and uh and you know or live and just uh, it's designed to be uh, affordable and, because you're going to yeah. beat it up and and semi
1: semi disposable in a sense. Really, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm picturing all of my uh outings with uh with uh, like student bands and how that stuff would get just all of that equipment would get bu- abused. And so you're talking about I mean, you got all just mostly SM58s cuz, you know, you can run over those with a car and they'll be fine.
0: Yeah. And you think about <laughs> other the things. cables, get yeah. so
1: abused and lost and, you know, outdoor just,
0: gigs, you know, and oh, yeah. it starts raining and, uh, you oh, know, sure. or it's been, you know, you got cables running over gravel and people walking over the top of them, uh, you, know, you know, so. <laughs>
1: <feel>. <laughs> and then at the end of the night, you know, everybody's packing up and wants to go home and, you know, you don't have. Half of it is rented anyway, so they're just throwing all the cables into milk crates and carrying them
0: off. You been oh, there, you know what I'm talking about. I don't do that. No, I'm the guy <laughs> you don't that they're going. You sons of, you know, because I'm the one rolling them all up. <laughs> uh, we're always like, oh,
1: roll them up when we get back to the no, get back to the school.
0: Roll them up on site. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, so we were going to, I did want to talk about um, some other th- stuff though, but, uh, um, and and what I kind of had come up with uh, that I thought would be of interest is, is everybody's familiar with for the most part um, what mastering engineers do on the front side and, you know, which is, is uh, work with uh, uh, audio processing and balancing EQ and compression and, and you know, in, in the context of, of the whole song of the whole album, you know, and we've talked about that, um, Versus a mix engineer being concerned uh, more with uh, the internal balance of, of specific tracks or track groupings and things like that, you know. But what we don't often talk about is um, the other side of mastering, which is uh, preparing all of the finished tracks for distribution. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is, uh, you know, these tasks are well within, they are the, uh, part of the role of uh, mastering engineer. And if I haven't said it before, you know, the audio processing side is uh, maybe makes up 50 percent of the actual workload of a mastering engineer, maybe, maybe a little less than 50 percent because there's there's so much that goes on on the back end. And, um, you know, and I think uh, I think most engineers that that provide mastering services are are pretty well familiar with um, like preparing material for for streaming services. Mm-hmm. You know that'd be me, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and maybe you know, maybe you could take that um and uh, tell us about your process for not working with the audio files and, and audio processing, but working with the audio files and preparation and packaging, basically
1: well, the streaming services, um I mean, the way it's worked with all of the musicians that I've worked with there's there's not much to do beyond you know, once you're done with the audio processing and you've made sure that all of the, and we've talked about the audio processing, then you make sure that all the songs, uh, you know, sound like they hang together. If it's uh, if it's an EP or an album, um, and you, you know, you do your tops and tails, you know, you got the end, the start times and end times so that they all sound good when they, when you play them in series. Um, it's really just exporting them as WAV files and those files then go to, the distributor like cd baby or distro kit or or what have you and then from there that distributor handles the creation of mp3s they handle the creation of cds if that's what people want to do so there isn't the the a whole back end. they provide the UPC code pay for that the they'll provide the uh ISRC codes if they don't have them I've, I've purchased a block of SRC code, so I have those if uh, people need them, um, but uh, frequently the distributor will give those as part of the purchase price. So a lot of that stuff is handled by the distributors such as CD Baby, um, because a lot of the musicians that I'm dealing with, that's, how, that's the route that they're going. So I'm kind of handing them the WAV files and that stuff is handled by the, the machine that's set up, You know, the, uh, the processing that's set up to make things easier for musicians through these the distributors that do all those different things. But you, you, you do it a little more old school. You do all that yourself and have, and create that, that CD master file.
0: Oh yeah. So like for, well, for streaming to kind of add on to what you do, um, I'm at a, a, I'm a registered ISRC manager um, with the U S ISRC agency. So I don't, I don't actually purchase a block of ISRCs. I actually I generate ISRCs on demand and, uh, and then Did not know that. <laughs> and then those, and then those get assigned to the, um, uh, to the music. I have to maintain a database of, of, of assignments. Um, hmm. And that's mainly to ensure uh, uniqueness of the ISRCs and, and that uh, uh, no duplicates are created. Right. And uh um because the actual generation part is uh is a manual process so um oh. i maintain the database oh so, what's the next one you know and uh and create them sequentially but um uh, so i need to know what i've created uh and then those get assigned and then the the user can uh you know or the the artist can uh, uh then has that uh, audio embedded uh, the ISRC embedded in the audio um as part of their uh their metadata package Oh, can I say something real quick? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that everybody knows
1: what an ISRC code is. What it's a unique identifier for a song that is used by any streaming service, any sync licensing service, any uh, you know your PRO, anybody that needs to identify your song as it's out there in the world, so that they can trace royalties back to you. Yeah, it's super super important to have those codes. Uh, and keep them the same anytime you change distributors, anytime you distribute your song, you should keep your own list of the ISRC codes for your own songs in your own spreadsheet and have them uh, on demand um, for that reason. Otherwise you're never going to get paid any royalties on that song.
0: Yeah. And and I think maybe an easy way to think about it, because I think maybe more people are familiar with ISBN codes for books. Okay. Yeah. It's the same thing. All right. And it's how, it's how authors of books get, royalties and get paid for uh, mm-hmm. sales of, of, of their books by, um, by other outlets. You know, So every time uh, Amazon sells a book, it's got an ISBN number and the mm-hmm. author gets whatever is due to him and, and royalties. It's the same way with music, with the ISRC code. And um, obviously the streaming services do that. Um, uh, you really need to be connected uh, in addition to what the streaming services do for you. Uh, you know, and like uh, uh, CD Baby and and Distrokid, uh, but also with the PRO, and right. um, you know, with like ASCAP or or BMI or something like that. And those are those are kind of specific for uh, performance royalties, right? Um, and then there's also uh, uh, services uh, that handle more types of uh, you know, if if it's used in sync, you know, or other broadcast, radio broadcast, mm-hmm. you know. And things like that. So, uh, so really. Sound, ex- uh,
1: sound exchange is, a, is the yeah, biggest
0: Yeah. So, and, I, and I, work, I work with sound exchange and that's what they handle those. So I always recommend that. And you can have an ASCAP account as well as a sound exchange account because they don't overlap. Correct. And uh, so the ISRCs, you know, with the services that you're, uh, you're using uh, so, and then um, your, your ASCAP or BMI and then a sound exchange account cover you. Artists usually handle their own ASCAP accounts and things like that, but I'm set mm-hmm. up to actually be a uh, uh, managing representative of artists on sound exchange. So um, I can actually take uh, your album and uh, get it registered and enter in all the information and set it up for you um, so that uh, you then get the royalties uh, paid out. I don't take any royalties or anything like that. I, I just represent um, you in the um, to the capacity of of making sure it's it's properly registered, uh, and that's just an upfront fee as part of my mastering stuff. And after that, it's paid for. Nothing else comes out. And then uh, Apple Digital Masters is another thing, um, which mm-hmm. is uh, yeah, is an option um, in most uh, uh, distribution platforms. Uh, you know, I know definitely most most of the artists that I work with. Um, I've only just said it like five times. Uh, <laughs> More coffee. Um, Sound exchange? SASCAP. S- no, no, no. CD uh, Baby? Not CD Baby, uh, DistroKid. District. And, um, um, and DistroKid allows you to actually uh, select as part of your, your submission um, to have it uh, uh, sent in uh, to uh, certification as an Apple-approved digital master. But you have to have an Apple-approved digital mastering house in order to get that, which I am. Uh, got it. And uh, so you have to go through a certification process uh, for that, um, and, and that's good because one, it uh, that that whole process is about not having any digital clipping. Okay, I mean, really, that's that, that's the that's the the just up is to have the highest quality files with no clipping uh, that you can that you can create, you know, digitally. And the benefit of that for the artists is that they uh, receive higher preference in, uh, in iTunes searches and, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, and so, uh, music that is certified as Apple digital masters will actually come up more often in, in searches, given what you're searching for. So, um, uh, you have a higher probability of, uh, of getting in front of listeners that way. Um, so it's a nice benefit. Um, and then, it, uh, the same process, um, ensures that you're going to meet requirements for title, Uh, digital masters and things like that too. So uh, you know, so any of the, uh, for the high quality streaming stuff that has more to do with um, the resolution and the higher, you know, so for the title masters, the higher the resolution of your audio files, the better, you know, so maybe like 98 and stuff like that is a, -hmm. is a a good point to go for. I just always stress there. If you, you wanted to go for, I'm sorry, 96, if you wanted to go for 96, then you should be recording at 96 at the very beginning and, and, yeah. and, and mixing yeah. at 96, you know, and a lot of people don't do that because, uh, to record it, that means that you're losing half your channels because of the way that, uh, digital recording works, you know, so.
1: And the files are so, but oversharp- if
0: you're able to do it, then, you know, um, that sets you up for higher resolution files all the way through, uh, to distribution, um, which is, uh, you know, really a good thing to do. Um, but yeah, so that kind of encompasses the back end of of uh wow we have gone through time like <laughs> i know i was gonna say well,
1: we spent a good 15 minutes on cables
0: yeah okay man you know sometimes these topics just get away <laughs> i i know i talk too much man um i have so much more to talk about <laughs> Oh, I'll just run through it quickly. Just okay. Checklist that. Just All right. So I, I wanted to introduce you to DDPs, okay? Uh, uh, which is a uh, disk description protocol. I think that's correct. Yep, and uh, and uh, a, a DDP is basically an audio image that is burned onto disk, okay? So right, <laughs> as opposed to like what you might do at home and you're burning MP3s and, and ripping MP3s to disk, this is actually taking the audio file and creating an image of uh, that is the DDP and, uh, and it's set up in, in that certain uh, format to then be um, you know encoded onto and burned onto disk. There's some uh, nuances about it and I just wanted to quickly describe uh, how this is set up in the way that I do it. There is, uh, I think it's a, a 2,357 bytes uh, per sector in a CD audio file. And uh, there's 75 sectors per second that are that are played. Okay, so it's important when you uh, uh, are setting up your audio master for DDP that you change the resolution on in your DAW uh, to be uh, 75 sectors per second. And in um, and in my DAW, that happens to be a video setting because we're kind of talking about frames. Okay, oh, right, so. Right sectors and frames are kind of synonymous. So you actually use a video setting to change the frames and set up the grid then, um, you know, uh, accordingly so that the grid represents uh, how the CD sees it. And then you can look at your audio and, and uh, maybe more easily uh, uh, detect or determine, you know, uh, uh, mistakes that you're making in your layout. Hmm. But the, um, the way that you set up a DDP is, is uh, with markers and um, you'll have a first marker at the zero position, uh, which is, uh, the only thing that it contains is an exclamation point. And that's actually, uh, an indicator to the CD player that this is the beginning of the CD and, uh, and this is where you start. And, uh, and so that's the index zero, it's a zero index based, um, read. And then you have to have two seconds, uh, of nothing, no audio, and you place another marker. And uh, the reason you have to have two seconds is because you have to give CD players a time to actually read all the, the information on the CD. And, uh, and so you always uh, have two seconds of empty space till your first marker. Your first marker represents your first track. And then for every track that you have in the, the CD album, um, it will start at the beginning of the track with a marker. And and that is the album metadata or that that's the track metadata. And then at the very end of the, at the very end of the last song on the album, you have one more uh, marker, which represents the album metadata. And so that's the title of the album and, you know, ISRC and everything else that, that goes in there um, that goes at the end. So that's uh, the, the CD player actually will read the very last marker as, as that, album information and there's a lot more to go into you know uh ddp is uh, not open sourced it's a it's not a, you know uh, uh you can't go readily read the the spec on ddp so it's it's like owned and copyrighted but you you can create ddps there's software out there to create them and uh, and I would imagine that those manufa- the software providers, you know, are are buying licenses from the the copyright holder of DDP, and you know, in order to be able to use those. And I it just so happened in my Daw happens to support DDP rendering, so I can render. To, uh, you know, uh, I I just set that up uh, as I just explained, and then uh, and then render as usual. Um, and but I instead of choosing a waveform, I choose a DDP, and it'll create the DDP for me. So you're talking like a seven hundred,
1: like seven hundred megabyte file, right? Well, um, this is like a disk image.
0: Yeah, like no more, no more than seventy five, actually. So, oh. um, or I'm sorry, so no more than seventy five minutes. I don't really care. Oh, uh, I, see. Uh, I just want to. I think more of it in minutes. But yeah, so uh, you you would definitely. But the the DDP audio is nowhere near the size of because it's an image of uh, of like wave audio or whatever. Right. And also, it's important to note that for CDE audio, that's uh, got to be set up at forty-four point one by uh, by sixteen bit, okay? And because that's what the Red Book standard. Yeah, Red Book standard uh, to render the file. Once you have the DDP image, then you can actually uh, then uh, burn the DDP onto uh, onto disc. Um, and actually, the DDP is my deliverable, and I send that out to. Um uh, to the uh, CD uh, plant where it's either duplicated or replicated, and um, um, they just take the DDP image and then apply it to each one of the CDs. Yeah. Uh, there's a difference between duplication and replication that I wanted to cover. And uh, Duplication is like what you and I and everybody else do on their home computers when we rip disks and we actually burn mm-hmm. uh, a copy of, of of an audio file onto another disk, okay? And Uh, what they do in duplication is they have like a master disc and then they'll do maybe a, you know, 10 or a hundred disc copies being burned at the same time. Okay. Uh, Um, Replication is different and replication is a little bit more expensive and replication is a higher quality process where they actually create a glass master of, uh, of the CD image. And then it's, it goes through, it's actually stamping process. They stamp, The Uh, glass master, um, into the individual discs and then they get like a lacquer coat and, and, uh, and the printing and everything like that. So it's not actually a burning process. It's a stamping process and replication.
1: Um, I've heard about that, but I've never heard it described.
0: Yeah. Um some some other I'm sorry, I'm moving quickly here. Um, Wait, but you some other two minutes left. <laughs> notable things uh, are, are are PQ sheets, and you create PQ sheets from uh, once you've done your DDP. and the PQ sheet is basically the entire information sheet of all the metadata album information, track information, everything uh, that you've included, all the um, uh, you know, track information, including like uh, the length of the track and all that is in the PQ sheet. and it gives you um, a sheet to review to make sure that everything is correct. Um, So I always provide a PQ PQ sheet for review to my clients um, as uh, basically like a proof document and uh, uh, to catch any mistakes that might have been made along the way before we actually go to, you know, go to duplication or replication. After that, we talked about ISRC already and uh, metadata and embedding that, which is a process during the rendering uh, cycle. And I don't have time to get into vinyl um, or tape, but. uh, um, We can talk about that next time. Yeah, we can talk about that another time. But anyway, that's like the backside um, uh, of of mastering that no one ever really discusses much. It's actually hard to find information out on the web about it, too. But there's lots of things that go on in mastering that that people really don't have an idea of what types yeah, of things mastering. And that's mastering. a
1: lot of stuff specifically geared toward manufacturing physical CDs. So yeah. I don't know how, you know, are people still using CDs? I know they are, but I don't know. I don't know that everybody is. But, yeah, that's all a lot of... Uh, a lot of old school stuff that it's important to kind of keep around and keep that knowledge going.
0: Well, the, yeah, that you know, for posterity, for nostalgia, and you know, and things like tapes. There's a resurgence of cassette yeah. tapes
1: now. Cassette tapes, um,
0: great, which is why my, again. you know, I've geared up. And we talked about last uh, time. Uh, uh, I've geared up for uh, cassette tape mastering now, and yeah. it's been it's been so
1: fun, man. You know, <laughs> but yeah, I want to hear you know, more about that. Really Let's happy talk about final and tape and stuff next time. Yeah so anyway there you in, have it in the meantime there you have it in a Woo! nutshell thanks everybody for listening <laughs> it's a bit of a whirlwind we appreciate you all <laughs> All <laughs> take right, take a breath Doug take a breath peace <laughs> everybody have a great week <laughs> talk to you next time
0: alright bye bye
1: well that wraps up another episode of the Indie Music Podcast please like and subscribe share with your friends or just leave us a review on iTunes if you like what you've heard Find our social links and episode guide at indiemusiccast.com. Until next time,
0: keep creating. I didn't know you could talk that fast, man. Uh. It's so funny.